you know, when we look at Daniel 2, and we consider what's being said here, in Daniel 2, uh, remember Daniel, this young man who has been taken away from his homeland into the land of Babylon, he is the only one who can interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see the interpretation starting in verse 36, where Daniel says, This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And just to kind of take a step back, remember this is the dream that he had had about this statue. And it's actually a, here's an artist's rendering of it up there. Verse 39, But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly among excuse me, partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. It's interesting when we see that God kind of pulls back and shows us something that's happening on the global scale. All of these parts of this statue referred to various empires. Of course, the head of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar referred to himself, the uh, silver aspect here would be the Greeks. Uh, the, uh, the, the one after that would be the Medo-Persians. I'm sorry, the Persians, excuse me, back forth, Medo-Persians. Then the Greeks as the bronze. And then uh, Rome would be the iron, the legs of iron. And uh, just to briefly kind of go through here, uh, essentially what, the, what I would take this to refer to is that the, the, the iron itself would signify Rome in its uh, probably most uh, solid state before it became an empire. And after that, you see with the feet, the iron mixed with clay, that's when the emperors started coming about. You had these different rulers throughout time. And it's really sort of a weakened state in that sense. And so that's what we see is that there's going to be a kingdom that comes in the times of these kings, in the time where it's going to be the iron and the clay mixed together the time of the Roman emperors, and that is exactly when the kingdom of Christ was formed. But I want us to take a step, you know, step through these different empires and kind of consider the, the, the layout of the first century as we come to it. And uh, hopefully that's something that we can pull together from this. And I'll just say out the barrel, I, I don't think that Jesus 
could have come at a better time in history, uh, in culture, in location. You know, some people will kind of say, well, why didn't Jesus go to the great uh, famous places? Why didn't he go to Athens? Why didn't he go to Rome? He went where God intended him to be. And where he was was the best place he could have been. And I think history bears this out. It's very important, and, and I recognize that maybe if, if you didn't appreciate, if you didn't enjoy history class as a kid, maybe you won't get a lot out of this lesson, but I think we need to consider that the record of history bears out something very strong in terms of the case for Christ. And we want to keep that in our minds as we move ahead in this lesson. Well, as I said, we're, first of all, we start with the Babylonian Empire. God's people rebelled against him, served idols, mixed their religion with others, various ways of doing this, but ultimately fell into complete and total uh, 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 oblivion in this way. So they were taken captive by Babylon. One thing we need to recognize and, and think about in terms of the Babylonian captivity is that there were certain benefits concerning this. If you turn back to Psalm 74, in Psalm 74, there's a verse here I want to see where it says, They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. And I think that's one thing that we see is that those meeting places were indeed taken out. But... Specifically, we see the synagogue system in this time of exile being put together. And uh, this was done in a sense because where was the temple? What had happened to the temple? It had been destroyed by Babylon. There was no place for them to go. The temple is gone. And so they, they put together what was called the synagogue. And these were local places where they could worship. Another benefit of Babylonian captivity is that I think overall it cured the idolatry that had plagued God's people for so long. And we, when you read in Psalm 137 and verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. There are similar statements in places like Ezekiel where they're talking about by the river of Kabar. And uh, so, so we're, we're seeing God's people in a foreign land, but they recognize in this that, that they don't need to go this way anymore. They recognize where it's brought them and the misery that it's brought them. You see, uh, in the case of this exile, uh, it unified the nation. There no longer was a kingdom of Israel and a kingdom of Judah. There was just the Israelites. There was just the Jews. And they were unified in this way. You see that uh, play out in the books from Ezra to Esther. Uh, they became an isolated nation. They didn't imitate their neighbors after the exile. And in fact, beyond that, they evangelized their neighbors. Jesus makes the statement in Matthew 23 and verse 15 that the Pharisees would go 
uh, all this place to, to make a proselyte, and they would make them a, a worse a son of hell than themselves. But that's exactly what was happening, is that they were indeed evangelizing their neighbors. In this time, the canon of the Old Testament was assembled, essentially. Uh, the, basically, the, the 22 books that they talked about, where they sort of put some books together to, cannot, to, to, to make this into a, a full uh, 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 volume, you might say. We see this faithful remnant influencing the world, and of course in this time too, uh, not too long after, you have the, the, the outcome of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So there were a lot of benefits to this. Now the Babylonian Empire was not uh, very long-lived. It wasn't very long before uh, we, we see that um, Belshazzar was the last of the Babylonian rulers, very quickly taken over uh, by, uh, I think it was Darius, and later on, we see that Cyrus released the Jews. In Ezra 1, we see that Cyrus allows them to go back home. But many Jews stayed in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Uh, many people stayed in Babylon. Many people stayed in these foreign lands. This is what's referred to sometimes as the diaspora, uh, the dispersed Jews, uh, that, that's what we see referred to in the New Testament. John 7, 35, 1 Peter 1, verse 1, and James 1 and 1. The dispersed, uh, those who were among the foreign nations. So we want to keep that in mind as we, uh, as we consider this, that you had a development into the Persian Empire. Now, uh, then you go from this point to the Greek Empire. Uh, I think the Greeks really had... The, one of the greatest influences, one of the biggest, made the biggest changes in the world of the Mediterranean. You've got a time period from basically 330 to 30 BC where they were very, very influential. Um, uh, over time, the, the Greek cities of Ionia revolted against Persia. That, Athens sent those ships to, to help with that battle. Uh, Marathon in 490 BC defeated Darius, which was uh, uh, one of the kings there. And Xerxes invaded Greece in 480 B.C. So you see some big changes happening here. And as we look through this, there's one figure that I think becomes very important when we look at the Greek Empire, and especially in terms of what it did for the kingdom, uh, ultimate kingdom to come, the kingdom of God. Now, Alexander was not uh, some righteous person per se, uh, but... Uh, in, in, in effect, Alexander the Great helped to spread the gospel, Alexander III of Macedon. And what did, what did he do? Well, he moved Greeks around the Mediterranean world. Uh, there was a lot of trade happening. There, there was a lot of uh, Greek culture being spread with every victory that he had. Uh, you know, he conquered a, a lot, a lot of land. He, he conquered a lot of countries. And uh, what's interesting about it is that it seems to be that uh, if, if you were uh, worked with Alexander, he'd be nice to you. But if you crossed him, you better watch out. And so uh, that, that really made for someone who had a lot of ambition. Um, eventually, you kind of had this one world economy, establish one currency. And I say world in a, in a sense where the Mediterranean world. It seemed like all the world, just like when, when in, the, when the, uh, in the scriptures it talks about the whole world. And so uh, one of the most important things, and we'll keep going back to this a few times, is that he spread Greek language in the form of Koine Greek. We'll talk more about that in a minute. He also spread Greek ideas. The, the, 
the uh, philosophy that was spread throughout, uh, throughout the countries really kind of helped prepare people in terms of the mindset to receive the gospel. I think up until this time, there was a sense where, you know, you're, you're absorbed into this, uh, into these other ways, into uh, the, the, the tribalism, the tribal aspects. Well, it seems like Alexander put, put away a lot of that mindset. Um, of course, in the meantime, spread great deities and cults, uh, framed society around the city instead of the country. And the, the concept of individualism was something that was really uh, uh, not necessarily started here, but that really uh, took place in the sense that you can, you, if you decide you want to do something, you can go out and do it. Um, that, that preparation for it, all of this I think we need to recognize. If we plug this into what we see about the gospel, it, it seems to make sense. Now again, this fellow wasn't doing this because... Uh, because God told him to. I think he was doing this. This is all God's providence. In Galatians 4 and verse 4, it refers to the fullness of time in terms of how Jesus came. What we need to learn is that God, of course, controls history. Uh, in the time of the first century, by the time this came, came about, and I know we're, we're skipping ahead to the Roman Empire in this, but you think about this. You had a universal government. You had universal aspects to this that were over all these other countries. You generally had peace. People weren't necessarily at war with each other very much. You had, down the, you had Roman roads. You had easy travel. You had commerce that was easy. Uh, mostly you had uh, this, this overall thought of a disbelief in idols that seemed to become pervasive over time. You had the invention of papyrus, which made it much easier to write things down uh, for, for everybody else. And uh, also you had the spread of the Greek language. Uh, again, I think Alexander is, is one of the main persons that we have to thank for that. Uh, but of course, mainly God controls all this. I think God brought this all about. But what is the best gift of Alexander? I think it would probably be the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament. When you see in the New Testament uh, reference to the Hellenistic Greeks... In Acts 6, that reference is made to the Hellenistic Greeks, the, Hellenist, the, the widows of the Hellenists, the Hellenist widows. Uh, that began with Alexander's troops. His, his troops came from all regions of Greece. The soldiers especially had to understand one another. They had to speak a common language. These troops produced a leveling influence. And ultimately, Greek became the second language of conquered peoples after Alexander's victories. And these conquests gave Greek its, its universal nature, uh, that, that term lingua franca is that, that idea of uh, 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 language that everybody sort of knows. And it's kind of the same thing today in a sense because if you look at Europe and other places, what are people learning? Uh, people in those other places are learning English as well as their native language. And so uh, it's important for us to note that that, that tends to happen uh, with empires. And of course, Alexander uh, had that influence here. But what's so important about the Septuagint? Why, why should we care? Well, let's remember that these Jews who had dispersed, who had stayed in these foreign countries, these places in Egypt and other places, for example, the Jews that were in Egypt, they spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. They, they didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't live in, in Israel. There is a uh, book called The Letter of Aristeus. And it, it basically establishes that there was a time when there were 72 Jewish scholars who uh, were assembled uh, in Alexandria. 
and they took the Hebrew text and translated it into Greek. And because that was translated into Greek, it really was a Jewish work. It was Jewish scholars that worked on it. It was esteemed by Jews. And the Septuagint itself was what was used to help evangelize the rest of the world. The term God-fearers would be applied to people like in Acts 8, we see the Ethiopian eunuch. This man who feared God, who wanted to follow God, even though he was not a Jew. That was uh, ease. That was made much more possible by the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. So that's, that's why it's so important. We refer to Koine or common Greek in Jude 3. When he mentions to, I wrote to you of our common salvation, that's what he's talking about. The common, that word common is koine. And so uh, this language was mainly in use from 330 B.C. to A.D. 330, from Alexander's conquest to removal of the Roman Empire's capital from Rome to Constantinople. And it was at its peak in the first century B.C. and first century A.D., meaning that the, it seems like the majority of the people that were using it was around that time. So that's some interesting things to think about here. How, did, how was the gospel communicated? Well, I think it was mainly communicated through this language. When we get to the Roman Empire, the term dunamis that uh, Brother Gary brings up from time to time, and I appreciate that. You know, it's mentioned in Romans 1, 7, and 15, that, that strength, might, or force, that really was the same sense when people thought of Rome that's what that word would tend to mean. And the Jews made a treaty with the Romans around 165 B.C. We see that in the Maccabee books. And uh, again, those are written by uh, uninspired authors. But at the same time, we can appreciate that's exactly what happened. Um, it's interesting. The Jews didn't wait for the Romans to come and conquer them. They tried to broker a deal before any kind of conflict came up. And so uh, in the span of this, by the time we get to the first century, we have the Herodian uh, family. And uh, when you see in the Gospels, the Herods, uh, not every person that's called Herod is the same Herod. And we need to learn that and keep that in mind. Uh, Herod Antipater, which would have been the Herod the Great, uh, was the governor of Idumea. He supported a man named John Hyrcanus. And you can look up more about John Hyrcanus. But uh, he, at one time, was uh, uh, put up as the high priest of, of Israel. Um, he sent troops, Herod did, to help Julius Caesar. And because of this, Caesar restored the ethnarchy to Hyrcanus, meaning that he allowed Hyrcanus to uh, reign as king of Jerusalem for a certain period of time, and then appointed Herod and his, I think it's his brother, Phasael, as tetrarchs meaning that they were kings, they were governors over this area, more or less. And so Herod returned to Judea as king. Even though he wasn't a Jew, really, he was an Idumean. He always wanted to act like he was a Jew. And he remained loyal to Rome and his whole family down the, down the line. This is the same uh, man who put the order out to uh, put the, the Hebrew male children to death in the hopes that he would stop this idea of a Messiah. And so we know that, and, and, but of course by the time Jesus has grown up, we, you have a different Herod. So the Herod that Jesus sees is not the same Herod that tried to kill him. Now again, when we look at the uh, uh, landscape of the first century, 
we are introduced in, in the Gospels, and it's kind of interesting, when you stop the, the Old Testament, you go into the New Testament, well, who are these Pharisees and Sadducees? And the Gospels are written in such a way that it makes it clear that, that the people who were receiving these would have known who the Pharisees and Sadducees were. But we don't know that. But uh, generally, I would say that they knew, the Pharisees had a certain idea that they knew that law must be interpreted and applied. And so because of that, they gave divine authority to the interpretation and application of the law. Now think about this. It's more culpable, this is a quote from their writings, it's more culpable to teach against the ordinances of the scribes than against the Torah itself. And the Torah would have been the Pentateuch, basically. And so, hey, that, that sounds pretty good when you think about it. It's easier for us to understand that you know, the ordinances of the scribes are not as important as the Torah. But where did they... Uh, fall flat. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. What happened with the Sadducees? The Sadducees concept was different in terms of scripture. They argued that priests were to give the authoritative application of the law, but their instructions were not Torah in the sense that they were not uh, the Torah itself, but they had all the authority that was needed, essentially is what uh, the idea that I get. So the Pharisees, however, said that the Torah had been given to all Israel, not just priests, and therefore, all who were competent could interpret it. So it's this difference between the Sadducees were saying that here's these gatekeepers. The priest can tell you what that says, right? It's not the Torah itself, but they can tell you what it says. Whereas the Pharisees are saying you can read and understand the Torah for, for what it is for yourself if you're competent in doing this. The interesting thing is the Sadducees were right in rejecting the Pharisees' interpretations in the sense that where they went with the, the truths concerning these things, but they were wrong in viewing the scriptures as an uh, archaic, irrelevant book. And, of course, we, that, that's how we can see those differences. The Pharisees, of course, were right in viewing scriptures as relevant and binding, but they were wrong in exalting human tradition over scripture, and we'll see that uh, as time goes on here. The Pharisees and the scribes. You know, the scribes are mentioned in the, in the, the Gospels. We see them mentioned in tandem. And we need to remember the scribes were not the same thing as the Pharisees, but they often go together. If you were a scribe, you probably were going to be a Pharisee because they were spending so much time. They were the scholars of the law. We see that in Ezra 7 and verse 6. They were the copyists of the law, and they would regard themselves as its preservers and protectors. And so it's very natural. You know, why would someone who uh, does that all the time be a Sadducee? To say, well, the scriptures, you know, the, the, irrelevant. They're irrelevant. Let's just listen to the priests. You know, uh, we, we can see that very plainly, I think. Uh, there was a development also uh, toward the great synagogue. We might uh, uh, term that as, we, we refer to that as the Sanhedrin. It's designated in the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah was part of the Talmud. The Talmud is basically all of the oral law that the Jews added on to the Old Testament. And so these are uninspired writings, and so the Mishnah is part of that. Uh, the, the great synagogue of the Sanhedrin were designated as the representatives of the law who occupied a place in the chain of tradition between the prophets and the earliest scholars known by name. And so basically, this is what they would say is that uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi received from the prophets. And of course, it's interesting because Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi are prophets, but in the sense, they're saying they received from the prophets like Isaiah, the and then he says the, the men of the great synagogue received from Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So they tried to establish this chain of authority 
that went through. And so that's what we see in the Gospels is that they're trying to continue this chain of authority. When we think about uh, this too, that these members of the great synagogue taught be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the law. Uh, again, I mentioned the Mishnah and the Talmud, or a law was put to writing. So the things that they were adding to it. And of course, that was a, 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 something that they disobeyed in the sense, you know, Deuteronomy 4.2. We can see the problems that came up from this very clearly. And Jesus uh, criticizes these problems. But of course, Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Let's talk about proselytes as well before we finish up this lesson. Uh, Jews, of course, were scattered around the world, and they attracted many to Judaism. We see uh, uh, efforts toward that in Matthew 23:15 and Acts 15:1. You essentially had two types of proselytes: proselytes of the gate and the proselytes of righteousness. The big difference between these two groups was circumcision. There were some Gentiles who would join in and, and want to follow God, but they weren't going to be circumcised. These were what were called the proselytes of the gate. And then there were proselytes of righteousness. They, they were the ones that were indeed circumcised. And this, of course, this was really important to the Jews. And so that's where we see uh, those aspects. But when we see what was being put upon these people, uh, here's more of their writings. The rules for the Sabbath are like mountains hanging by air, for Scripture is scanty and the rules many. Uh, when you think about the Sabbath days, I think this is the one example that we look at sometimes when we see the excess of the oral law overtaking the law of Moses. Exodus 16.29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. That's pretty much all they had. As far as, I know there were other passages that we could look at, but generally, there's not a whole lot of detail there. Well, that's one of the things that happened over time. That, uh, that, that the, the Sabbath day's journey was something that they would uh, try to make clear on. I have something in my notes, which I haven't really been uh, uh, going with here that's not on the PowerPoint. But, uh, you know, for example... The Jews would allow for someone to enlarge the distance that they could uh, travel on a Sabbath day's journey by they could deposit possessions within a 2,000 cubit distance from their home. So you could take something that belongs to you and put it you know, 2,000 cubits away from your home and you can still travel between that. And it's still a Sabbath day's journey. It's okay. You'll be all right. You know? uh, so all these things that they were adding led ultimately to, of course, a confrontation. Now let's note that the Jesus and the Pharisees agreed on many things. Jesus embraced the authority of the law. Um, in Mark chapter 1, Mark 1 and verse 40, you see this instance with the leper. And Jesus has a very clear commandment to him. He's healed this leper. And it says in verse 43, He strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing 
those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Jesus is essentially telling this man, follow the dictates of the law of Moses to, to, to finish this up, essentially, is what he's saying. And, uh, but, of course, the, the leper um, disobeyed him, and, of course, it caused trouble for Jesus down the road. Also look at Mark 14. Mark 14, 12. And there are other passages we could see. But we see in Mark 14 and verse 12 that Jesus says on the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? This was something that was important to Jesus. And it's interesting too in that, in that passage when you see earlier on, uh, even in verse 11, what's happening? The ruling Jews, the Pharisees, they're working on trying to kill Jesus. That's what they're busy about in the time of the Passover, whereas Jesus is trying to uphold the law. So he embraced the authority of the law. And, of course, he enjoyed many friendly contacts with Pharisees. Not everyone. And you look in Mark 12, uh, the, the interaction between the Pharisee, him and the Pharisee there, that he appreciated what, what that Pharisee had said. So uh, not every situation was hostile. But, of course, they disagreed often. Jesus associated with sinners. We see that in Mark 2. He would be asked about that and pressured about that. He didn't keep the Sabbath priorities that the Pharisees had put upon the Sabbath. And we could see that again in Mark 2 into Mark 3. Jesus neglected the ritual purity that they had so uh, written about and, and pressed upon. In Mark 7, why don't you... Uh, wash, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat, as the tradition of the Father says? And, of course, in Mark 10, he differed with the Pharisees over divorce. So there's a number of things that we could see here. And I know this kind of feels like we're just sort of stopping at a wall here, but really, I think that's kind of all that we can say in this. You know, I'd love for us to maybe go back to this someday and maybe pull some more things out to think about. But I do want to leave you with this. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard his voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. When we really think about the real aspects of this, of course they're all real, when we think about the proofs that God has shown us, the ways that God has shown us that, that, that this was the fullness of time, this was the, the greatest opportunity that people had to hear the gospel, to know Jesus, to know the Messiah. It really makes you think about things. It makes, it makes me pull back from trying to think, well, why didn't, Jesus, why didn't God just send Jesus after Adam and Eve sinned? There's a reason. I don't think that would have been as good a time as when Jesus came. And I'm at the point now where I can't think of a better time than when Jesus came. I mean, really, do, 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 would we want Jesus to come after the Tower of Babel when people couldn't even talk to each other? 
God has set up certain ways, of course, for us to communicate with each other and to help others, and we need to make use of those. And we need to be thankful for the things that he's he left us and the word that he's preserved. Now, I know this has not been specifically about salvation, but this morning, if you think about where you are, maybe you're in a place where maybe you haven't been listening well enough. It's not always an issue where we just you know, don't get it or don't understand it. I think sometimes it's easy for us to understand, but it's hard for us to apply. We tend to think that this is a lot more complicated and this, I can't figure this out right now. And maybe we kick the can down the road. And we figure, well, I'll be okay. You know, God's going to take care of me. God has his grace. And of course, he does have his grace. But am I in contact with that grace? Have I made use of that grace? Look at the grace that he gave to his people. Look at the ways that he made a situation where they could essentially go wherever they wanted to. Uh, if you spoke Greek, you could go to the, all these different places. The way that Paul used his Roman citizenship to go to all these different places and speak to all these different people from all these different backgrounds. God made it possible. And God can make our mission possible as well, but only if we completely and totally give ourselves to him. So if you haven't completely given yourself over to God this morning, we encourage you to do that while we stand and sing.